trusted voice of truth and light. God gave me a gift. I shovel well. I shovel very well. And a rally point for those who've accepted the reality that they are not sheep. We've got a blind date with destiny. And it looks like she's ordered the lobster. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Well, hello there and welcome to the show. I don't know how you found me, but uh, however it happened, I'm glad you're part of our growing audience of wrong thinkers. Now, my job here is not to tell you what to think. My job is to encourage you to think as clearly and independently as possible about what's going on in the world around us. Necessarily, that means that uh, my message is not for the masses, and that's okay. I'm absolutely fine if if my audience is uh, is even numbers as a handful of people. I know it's larger than that, but but I never take it for granted. If it's even just a handful of people, I know it's people who care more about truth, who actually care about moving the needle by using their influence as wisely as they can wherever they happen to be standing. And I know that you're one of those people. So let's uh, let's jump in and have a great journey together today. Got some great sponsors who make this show possible on a daily basis, including Dixie Chiropractic, HSLAmmo.com, Sewing and Quilting Center. In fact, Teresa Alsop will be joining me later in the show. Also, MonticelloCollege.org, LifesavingFood.com, the Heather Turner team at Patriot Home Mortgage, and GovernYourCrypto.com. So I know we live in a really remarkable age, and I still marvel at, uh, you know, my smartphone and all the information that's available to me just, you know, at, at whim. I want to know what the temperature is. No, I want to know what the relative humidity is and which way the wind is going, what the wind chill is and what's coming up in the next 20 minutes and the next 10 days. It's all there and so much more. But I have to ask this question with all the neat goo-gahs and gadgets that we have in our lives today. Has the age of the book come and gone? Now, see, I certainly hope not, because I have had a lifelong love affair with books from when I was too young to read, but I loved looking through the pictures. National Geographic, by the way, seemed really interesting for some reason. I I can't explain, but uh, nonetheless, reading has been a very instrumental part of, of my life. And I still, even with Kindles, you know, and electronic books and audio books and so forth, there is just something to be said about the, the, the sensation of paper with words on it right under my fingertips. So when I wonder if the age of the book has come and gone, I'm not necessarily thinking, yeah, have we progressed beyond the primitiveness of killing trees and printing on it with ink, you know, to on that paper to, to, to get words and ideas across. I want to share with you this commentary from Vincent McCaffrey. This is from AmericanGreatness.com. AmGreatness.com. There we go. And he says the future of the book is the future of, of mankind. And the subtitle is Freedom is Extremely Dangerous, but without it there is no future. Vincent McCaffrey says, with differing motives and for differing reasons, people say the book is dead. But he says, for the most part, this is fantasy or science fiction, if you prefer. Certainly speculative. He says, the moldering piles that clutter our attics and basements, garages and cubby holes are testament to the present truth of the matter, but they are, in fact, moldering. Now, he says these piles grow ever smaller as we constrict our lives to fit the new social norms. Without a change in direction, the time will soon come when this death is a fact with or without the intervention of a growing authoritarian state. Because the growth of that state will only reduce those numbers faster as the contents of our books become more threatening to authority. 
The wonderful conceit of Ray Bradbury's Fahrenheit 451, which once created a furor of indignation in the mind of a public that consumed books by the pound and reveled in the paperback revolution, is now being accomplished without heat and relatively without notice except by some curmudgeons and students of the past. Objecting to the ongoing digitalization of knowledge is considered Luddite, at least by the few who know a little language and less history. This ephemeral technology and its fungible content beg for the postmodernist editor's hand. Vincent McCaffrey says to begin at the beginning is to attempt a gibbon out of the history of the printed book. But much can be understood simply by watching a recent YouTube posting in that extraordinary series of interviews, Uncommon Knowledge, conducted by Peter Robinson for the Hoover Institution. Now, he links to one. He says this one with the choose-your-own-inadequate-adjective amazing Jordan Peterson called the the importance, rather, of being ethical. But he says the title does not give away the connection to my worry, but it sets the table for the comprehension of it in more ways than one. Vincent McCaffrey says, I am inadequate to the task of interpreting the hour of conversation, but a few points are enough to draw the lines. After establishing his bona fides in the Western tradition, Peterson passionately makes the argument for free speech and the necessity of free speech in a free society. He says, we think in words. There is no difference between speech and thought. I don't think that free speech is a right among other rights. We use speech to organize our psyche. Now, because thinking through the problems we encounter in life can be daunting, we use the social communication of speech as a means of working out the logic of our thoughts. Jordan Peterson says, you have a right to free speech because the entirety of society depends for its ability to adapt to the changing horizon of the future on the free thought of the individuals who who compose it. Like a free market, in some sense, it is a free market in relationship to thought. Now, Mr. McCaffrey says, and the revelations continue. Most who might bother to read this already understand these points, but he says maybe not so cogently, but it can be thrilling to watch and hear. He says, my own first inference from Peterson's words is tied to my concern for books. The fragile nature of a digitally interpreted world, its separation from the thought process of mankind, even to its bloodless design to obsolescence, is not simply a danger. It is the beast itself. And he says, Robinson brings Peterson to that key point. Our stories make us. Peterson says, I don't think you can look at the world except through a structure of values. I believe we see the world through a narrative framework. You need a mechanism to prioritize your attention. There's no difference between prioritizing your attention and imposing a value structure. The mechanisms we use to prioritize our attention are stories. Yes, The reason why there has been such a sea change in the politics of Western society since World War II is that the universities that educated us and have had command of these stories have largely been in the hands of postmodernists, in other words, socialists and the Marxists. Now, McCaffrey says, I can't offer any solution to the convenience represented by the tool of digital technology. It's as marvelous as it is terrible. In some ways, he says, I see it as a counterpoint to the wonder of individual freedom itself. Freedom is extremely dangerous, but without it, there is no future. Even the past is lost as we repeat an endless cycle of obedience to an authority that fears dissent, and with the words made fungible to suit its purpose, may now alter the knowledge of its own actions. The First Amendment 
A statement of principle, he says, I've long believed should have been the very first paragraph of the Constitution and not buried at the end or set apart with lesser concerns, specifically addresses the importance of this freedom. Quote, Congress shall make no law respecting an establishment of religion or prohibiting the free exercise thereof or abridging the freedom of speech or of the press or of the right of the people to peaceably to assemble and to petition the government for a redress of grievances, end quote. Now, Vincent McCaffrey says, books are the means of passing on our small inheritance of knowledge so that it might be added in, added to rather in the future. If this means is lost, he says it'll be a direct result of our loss of free speech and with it, free thought. And with that, we will have lost any hope of a better future for our children. Now, you may be wondering, okay, Brian, why are you sharing this with us? Again, this is from Vincent McCaffrey, writing for AmericanGreatness.com. But the reason that I'm sharing this with you is not so much to encourage you, hey, you know, you should probably read some more books, dude. Although I'm, I'm going to tell you still, my, my favorite pastime when I really am engaging in leisure, it's not so much a matter of, yeah, I'm going to prop my feet up, kick on the TV, and just, you know, veg on whatever's going on on Netflix. Nope. My favorite thing is to find a quiet place, comfortable, good lighting, and a good book. I go on vacation with the family. I'm going to take a book because I love to read that much. But I'm going to ask you to go one step beyond that. Yes, you should have great books. And I mean you should have physical books. You know, just on the off chance that I don't know, we're ever in an extended lights out situation. It's always good to have the hard copies on hand. But more than that... I want you to consider the importance of starting to write your story. Are you keeping a journal of any kind? Are you you saving anything of your experiences, your hard-won wisdom that you can pass on to the people who are going to follow in your footsteps? Maybe it's just because I, I had an aunt who passed away here recently, and she was writing a family history. And the more she wrote, the more passionate she became about uh, telling the story of these uh, ancestors who came before us. And it was fascinating. I mean, the more I read, the more it kind of pulled me in as well. And so I get where she's coming from. But there's something really powerful about being able to share the wisdom that you have learned and have won and, and, and share your mistakes too so that future generations can learn from you. And when we're gone, and it's always going to be sooner than we think, I can't tell you how much the people who are left behind will treasure those words and treasure that connection which remains so start writing as well as reading this is the brian hyde show this is the brian hyde show all right welcome back to the show i'm very happy to welcome uh, sarah weaver to my program. I've met Sarah through the Young Voices program. And actually, Sarah, I understand you've kind of crossed a milestone or two in your life. Tell, tell our audience about uh, who you are and uh, what you're doing. Yeah, so I, um, I'm a writer. And as of, well, I guess yesterday, I'm not anymore, but I was a graduate student at Hillsdale College. Um, finished up my last final yesterday, so it's very exciting. Um, and I'll graduate officially on Saturday. So after that, I'll be heading to D.C. for a cool opportunity in the journalism field. Okay, and I've I've followed Sarah's writing now for a couple of years. She's very very talented, and and Sarah, you are uh, you're also a principled conservative voice out there. 
And there, there's a lot of folks out there who have points to make, but uh, sometimes those points uh, turn out more like spittle flinging and less like, you know, hey, that, that, that's something that's an idea I can really get my mind around. Um, talk to me about your reaction to the leak of a draft Supreme Court decision earlier this week. Maybe tell us a little bit about what you know about it and um, why it matters or what we should be thinking regarding it. Yeah, so uh, earlier this week, as you mentioned, um, an opinion, an early opinion of the pay, of the uh, case that basically would decide the fate of Roe v. Wade um, was leaked. And this is very unprecedented. The fact that it was leaked is pretty disturbing. Um, it's, it seems to me to be at least an intimidation tactic. We don't know f- for certain who it is who leaked it. Um, Justice Roberts released a statement definitely condemning the fact that it was leaked. It's definitely an unprecedented move. But the fact is, it was leaked, and from what I've read of the opinion, it's a very full-throated repudiation of Roe, and in particular of the sort of judicial activism that Roe represents. Um, The opinion doesn't so much say things like, you know, abortion is murder or something like that. It's more like, well, they just kind of found this this, uh, phantom right to abortion in the Constitution, and Justice Samuel Alito is sort of just arguing in the opinion, in the draft opinion, um, that that right doesn't really exist. And, and the Roe v. Wade opinion didn't really say where it exists, too. They just stated that it did exist. It seems, too, that this addresses what uh, what was really one of the underlying problems with Roe from the very beginning, and that is it took what should have been something that was in the hands of the states and the people and made it a federal matter or a national matter and imposed a one-size-fits-all, top-down um, coercive mm-hmm. approach by telling states you can't uh, do any kind of restrictive abortion laws, you know, beyond this this level. My understanding is, if in fact Roe is overturned, this decision would simply put that back in the hands of the states. Yes, that's exactly right. Yeah, so it'll basically be decided by the people's elected representatives. That's basically what um, Alito said, and and he argues that that's that's what should be done. Now, I'm it's not surprising. I'm pro life, so I hope that the people's elected representatives choose the pro life position, but. Um, there's already some movement um, towards the pro-life side on the state level. The South Dakota governor just said that she was going to um, assemble a special session of Congress to implement legislation to protect unborn lives if Roe is if overturned, and this opinion is becomes the official opinion of the court later this year. Um, the New York Times put out an article saying I think at least like 13 states could ban abortion very quickly if they uh, if the opinion were to go through, and then other sorts of states have similar laws on the book that were sort of invalidated by Roe, but if without Roe, they could go back um, uh, in effect. Uh, For instance, Michigan, which is ruled by an overtly pro-abortion Democrat governor, Gretchen Whitmer, they do have like a 90-year-old law on the books that would um, basically ban abortion in most cases. I think there may be an exception for rape and incest and life of the mother, but, but a very, very sweeping abortion ban that could go into effect in this pretty blue state if Roe were to be overturned. So there's definitely like some some very cool things that could happen for the pro-life movement on the state level if this were to be overturned. But but again, the, it would be the states actually working to the majority, to, to the will of the majority and their lawmaking um, bodies, as opposed to simply, well, you know, these unelected justices decided they knew what was best and therefore you have to do that. Um, so in, in other words, there will be states where you could still absolutely get a taxpayer-funded abortion on demand right up to, you know, the delivery date. But yeah. but in other states where, where that's not going to fly, those states would, would have the ability and wherewithal to say no. 
Right, exactly. Yeah. So it basically just gets rid of the fact that Roe v. Wade just sort of read into the Constitution this constitutional right to abortion. So it makes it more of an issue that you can have a sort of majority opinion on it one way or the other. So it's a huge step forward in the pro-life movement. Um, you know, the pro-choice movement is obviously already has been and will continue to fight this. Um, that's to be expected. Um, there are tons of protests going on right now in D.C. from what I hear from friends who are there right now. Um, so the, the work's certainly not over, but um, Roe v. Wade is sort of the iconic decision uh, that sort of represents, you know, that our government is pro-abortion. And once that goes away, it's, it's, it's a very, it's not only is a victory um, in, in its practical application, but it's something of a symbolic victory. You know, Roe v. Wade's sort of the abortion movement's calling card. And yep. once it goes away, it's, it's, it just, it goes back to the people. And I think the people are, I, th- I think they're pretty pro-life. I think if um, they're given the right uh, uh, information on abortion, so, um, yeah, it'll, it'll be up to the, the state's representatives, which is, I think, what it should be constitutionally. Sarah, give me your take on the leak itself. Is is this something that we need to, to be concerned about? I'm seeing a lot of angst on the part of people saying, oh, my goodness, this is going to undermine the court's authority in the worst possible way. I'm not sure how I feel about it. What's your take? Um, I think it's very unprecedented and likely was an intimidation effort. Um, I can't think of many cases in which the opinion was leaked, um, although I'm sure they have existed. Um, yeah, the judges who apparently were going to sign on to this um, opinion, it's written by Simo Lido, and I think uh, Thomas Gorsuch, Kavanaugh, and Barrett were going to sign on to it. So, you know, it's five justices. Um, so that's a majority. Um, and I think what they're going to try to do is sort of um, – you know, get get some of the more moderate judges to um, to to vote for them um, for the pro-choice side. But um, you know, I'm just hoping the cooler heads prevail. It's certainly a time to pray for these justices um, that they will make the right decision. And uh, you know, regardless, it is it is very encouraging that this is this is even a considered opinion in the court right now. That's such a such a full-throated uh, repudiation of this idea that there is a right to abortion in the Constitution is being even considered by the, by, uh, the Supreme Court of the United States. I think that's, that's a victory for us. Okay, so um, you've probably heard, as well as I have, talk about um, packing the court. Well, we'll make sure this never happens again. What's the, what's the likelihood of, of something like that gaining traction? Um, I don't think it will gain traction with the American people as of right now. That's just... It's one of those issues that even I feel like the more moderate liberals you might run into on the street are just going to, they're going to hear that and they're going to be like, well, that's not cool. You know, there's always been nine, not always been nine justices, but there's been nine justices for a long period of time in the past. And um, it definitely seems like a hugely thing to do. Um, the question will be whether or not the left can gain some sort of power where they can do this basically without um, considering what the American people would want um, in regard to that. But I, I don't think there's a lot of, I don't think it would pull well for um, Democrats to do that. I think if it would kind of be a suicide pact, if they were to, right. to pack the, uh, it would basically be that there's something and maybe it would be abortion, something that was so dear and dear to them that they're basically going to kind of give up their midterm elections for those who are up for reelection in order to do this. Okay. Sarah, I appreciate you sharing your take on this, and uh, I want to encourage my my listeners to to find you and follow you on social media. Where's the best place that they can find you? Uh, Best place is probably just to follow my Twitter at Sarah Hope Weaver. That's Sarah with an H. 
Okay. And, and congratulations on your graduation. Congratulations on your new gig. Thank you. All right. I'd, I'd love to, I would love to touch base with you in the future on, uh, on other issues, you know, particularly of the culture. I, you seem to be very dialed in, and I think in a good way, on, on those cultural issues. So hopefully that doesn't sound like I'm putting you in a, in a pigeonhole here, but I, I, yeah. I like your take on stuff. Thank you. All right. That's Sarah Weaver we were talking with. Thanks again for joining us. We'll take a quick break, pay a couple of bills, and be back right after these messages. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, welcome back to the show. I want to send some love in the direction of the Heather Turner team at Patriot Home Mortgage. Thank them for being a sponsor of my show and to tell you, if you find yourself looking for a mortgage, maybe even a refi. Maybe you want to get in there and and uh, take advantage of what has been, you know, historically some pretty low interest rates. Heather and her team at Patriot Home Mortgage are the folks you need to talk to. Her NMLS ID is 715-386. Patriot Home Mortgage is an equal housing opportunity lender. And if you're anywhere within the state of Utah or Idaho, give her a call. 435-703-4522. I also have a link that will connect you to her email. It's in my show notes, which you'll find at the com. Well, mandatory mask theater apparently uh, may not be over. I mean, I rejoiced along with a lot of other people when it came to a court uh, or a, dist- a judge in Florida striking down the uh, transportation mandate that the CDC had been uh, inflicting on Sorry, maybe that's the wrong choice of words. Had uh, required of (laughs) planes and trains and buses and so forth. But apparently they are announcing a semi-permanent extension of their previously struck down mandate. And this extension apparently has no expiration date. This is uh, from conservativetreehouse.com. It's from contributor Sundance. And it says, previously a federal judge overturned the federal mask mandate for transportation thereby allowing travelers to make their own choices. By the way, just as an aside, how many travelers, given the ability to make that choice, dutifully masked up just because it's the right thing to do? Maybe 5%. I mean, it was it was a ridiculously small number. But it shows you pretty clearly where American sentiment is going at this time. People are through with this. They're tired of being forced into wearing a piece of cloth on their face as a token of their obedience to the powers that be. Now, the DOJ, again, has appealed that decision. Uh, The status of that litigation is unknown. It's still being decided. But yesterday, the CDC announced, actually, I guess it was uh, May 2nd, the CDC announced a semi-permanent extension of the federal transportation mask mandate with no expiration date noted. And what that means is that all travelers on airplanes, trains, buses, and ride-sharing will be required to wear face masks again, including inside the terminals and operational hubs of those transportation nodes, pending the outcome of the DOJ appeal in federal court. Now, the CDC announcement says, at this time, CDC recommends everyone aged two and over, including passengers and workers, 
Properly wear a well-fitting mask or respirator over the nose and mouth in indoor areas of public transportation, such as airplanes, trains, etc., and transportation hubs, such as airports, stations, etc. This public health recommendation is based on the currently available data, including an understanding of domestic and global epidemiology, circulating variants, and their impact on disease severity and vaccine effectiveness, current trends in the COVID-19 community levels within the United States, and projections of COVID-19 trends in the coming months. Now, Rochelle Walensky went on to say CDC continues to recommend that all people, passengers and workers alike, properly wear a well-fitting mask or respirator in indoor public transportation conveyances and transportation hubs to provide protection for themselves and other travelers in these high-volume, mixed-population settings. Additionally, she says it's important for all of us to protect not only ourselves, but also to be considerate of others at increased risk for severe COVID-19 and those who are not yet able to be vaccinated. Wearing a mask in indoor public transportation settings will provide protection for the individual and the community. Sorry, I just I feel like I need to go rinse the, the horrible taste of those words out of my mouth here. So back to the article, it says if the Biden administration loses the court appeal, appeal rather to reinstitute the mask mandate, this announcement by the CDC would appear to be moot. They couldn't enforce it. However, if the Biden administration is successful in their appeal, well, then the mandatory mask wearing returns. Put another way, if the Biden administration lose the appeal, people wearing masks will be the covid worshippers. They'll still have that choice. They can still mask up. But if the Biden administration wins its appeal, that means we all have to wear them. And apparently the CDC is taking no chances that if it can reimpose it, it wants it to be as permanent as possible. Now, let's remember the mandate created by Joe Biden did not have legal structure. This was pure dictatorial fiat that exceeded the capacity of the executive branch to create. U.S. District Judge Catherine Kimball Mizell found the CDC exceeded its statutory authority with the mask mandate, and it violated the rules that guide CDC regulations. After Joe Biden arbitrarily announced the federal transportation mandate, the CDC triggered enforcement of the mask mandate without any required time for public feedback on a new regulation. Now, Congress could easily write a law authorizing mechanisms for the CDC and TSA to use in enforcement of a federal transportation mask mandate, but they won't. And the reason they won't is because the public doesn't support it. However, the Biden administration doesn't care about majority public opinion. They are fine-tuned to push virtue signaling as a political strategy. This article says the White House is very committed to all their mandates around COVID-19. The mask mandate is no different. From the perspective of the professional political left, the theater of forced mask wearing represents the visible power and authority of government to rule the lives of the irrelevant proles. Any pesky legal rulings that seek to reduce or remove the power of government are viewed by the left as arbitrary and insignificant efforts to block their almighty power of government. Now, they can choose to wear a mask if they want, but that's not really the issue behind the mask mandate. The true power of the left is the ability to force everyone to comply to their whims, regardless of individual freedom. The Covidians who define themselves by their adherence to the dictates of the U.S. government will be happy with this position from the CDC earlier this week. They worship at the altar of COVID science. They use masks as an expression of their sanctimonious feeling of superiority. 
However, in an election year where the overwhelming majority of people have had enough of this political science, this CDC position may soon uh, fuel an even more angry response. So let me ask you this. How would you approach this? And I'm not trying to, well, maybe I am trying to push you towards, you know, extremism here or, you know, some kind of activism. But more than, more than that, what I'm trying to do is ask you to consider, have you drawn a line? Have you made some kind of a, 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 an agreement with yourself that I will go no further than this, or this is where I absolutely refuse to submit? Because I don't think this is the kind of thing that you can afford to just, well, you know, I'll cross that bridge when I get there. I think if you wait until that moment, you have waited too long. And, and when the time to pass or play is forced on you, you know, you're, you're going to play because that's the only way you can, you know, continue. You, the only way you can get on your flight, etc. I mean, maybe maybe I'm being unreasonable. I, I have to consider the possibility that maybe maybe I'm just, you know, being defiant here for some reason, some inexplicable reason. I'm, I'm rejecting common sense. But then again, from the very beginning... When masks began to be a thing, something about that just seemed off. In fact, uh, when, when, when masking really kicked in and before the mask mandates really started, well, I guess it was about the time they really started being hammered on us a couple of years ago. I sat down and wrote a little uh, essay called, My Mask Won't Fit Over My Conscience. And I have to say, looking back on that now to, from two years later, it actually aged pretty well. Because it felt at that time more and more like the masks were not so much a matter of, well, you know, Brian, this is going to protect people. It's going to protect you. No, this is about an outward manifestation of how compliant I'm willing to be. And it's, you know, I don't mind if there's if somebody wants to to, to be compliant, I'm not going to stand in their way. But it went so much further. I mean, this this was the birth of the era of Karen. And and the mask enforcers. And there, there were some places that were just so hideously um, authoritarian about it. Harmon's in Salt Lake City. <laughs> I'm looking at you. The grocery chain there that, you know, they, they had a mask enforcer who was just ruthless. I mean, like, would rival any bouncer at a New York City nightclub. Somebody came through the door and they weren't masked up. Man, this lady would chase them down and harangue them and harass them. I mean, for crying out loud, in Cedar City, Utah, you had, uh, was it Smith's employees? Corner some guy wearing like a Lone Ranger style mask and threatening to kick his you-know-what because uh, he wasn't properly masked. How easy it is to get people riled up and turned against each other to the point of threatening violence and ostracizing them and kicking them out of polite society. Yeah, I know the CDC claims, well, you know, we show that it really does uh, protect the community as well as the individual. There may be some limited protection. What I've seen is the studies are mixed, and really, places with mask mandates didn't fare any better than places that didn't have mask mandates and where people could make their own choices. People still got COVID at the same rates, survived it at the same rates, etc. But it seems like the, the masks have become a token of your obedience to authority and i gotta say this is a time where you need to think long and hard about just which authority you are willing to submit to and which you are not this is the brian hyde show 
This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, welcome back to the show. I am so happy to uh, welcome my next guest. That it would be Grayson Quay. He's weekend editor at, uh, is it theweek.com? Yes. And also, uh, you, uh, tell me again, you also hold down a place at thespectator.org? Okay. At the Spectator World. Spectator at Spectator World. World. Yeah. All I know is I follow you pretty closely on Twitter because you keep things worthwhile and interesting. Um, there's a lot of voices on Twitter, and Grayson, i got to say, I'm glad you're one of them because you, you always have a thoughtful take on things, often a humorous take, but there's, there's principle behind it. And being a principled person, particularly a person of faith in this time, well, let's just say it's not exactly easy, is it? Uh, not always, but I'm... Uh, I'm feeling particularly encouraged, uh, particularly joyful this week, I will say. I got some very good news on Monday with the uh, draft Supreme Court decision that was leaked to Politico. It's okay. Give me your reaction. I mean, I think uh, I think you've been clearly in the pro-life camp for for a long time. Um, Have you been in the trenches, you know, over the years in in helping to 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 move that that pro-life movement forward? Uh, yeah, so I grew up, um, you know, I, I've kind of always been on the pro-life side of things growing up. Um, more recently, I've been doing some writing, and then I decided it was time to get more directly involved. So I've been doing uh, pro-life sidewalk counseling for the last several months as well, uh, which has been a really interesting and eye-opening experience. What is that like? What does that look like? Uh, it's mostly just depressing. Um <laughs> A lot of uh, a lot of a lot of verbal abuse from passersby, um, but once in a while, um, I mean, you know, really once in a blue moon, maybe once or twice in all the months I've been doing it, you get someone who changes their mind, and it uh, makes it all worth it. Um, wow, I mean, I, I, I think that's uh, that is probably one of the best applications of you know direct ministry that I that I've ever heard. But to, good for you for being there and, and doing it. Um, did this take you by surprise? The leak. Or, or did you have a hunch, by the way, that uh, Roe v. Wade was was likely to be overturned? What was your take? Well, I guess I thought it was likely to be overturned in kind of a, a theoretical sense. Um, I was seeing a lot of you know doom and gloom from the pro-choice side for months now, and um, so I did I did expect it in a way, but I still uh, I, I try not to get my hopes up too much about things like this. Uh, just so I'm not too disappointed if it goes badly, but in this case. I was not disappointed. Uh, seems as though they're going to vote five to four um, with Roberts flaking out as usual uh, to overturn Roe v. Wade and Planned Parenthood v. Casey and basically send the issue completely back to the states. Um, and that's very exciting news. I'll tell you, um, working outside the clinic uh, really kind of made made this very visceral and real to me. Um you know, it got to where I truly felt like I was living in, in ancient Carthage or in, uh, you know, the Aztec Empire or something. And that I looked around me and I just saw this culture and where all of its achievements were were built on this uh, foundation of of murdered babies. And it was really it was really starting to get to me in a way. And I feel as though this this stain has been lifted. Uh, this weight has been lifted as well from this country. It's. It's really encouraging. Uh, This is going to sound backward, but what makes me encouraged, what makes me think that, wow, this might really be, you know, a turning point is the intense and 
furious reaction from the political left. I mean, if if this was no big thing, they'd probably be a lot more calm. But holy cow, it's I mean, it is scorched earth time. Yeah, well, from what I'm seeing, the number one uh, suspect, so to speak, uh, for the leaker right now is a clerk for Sonia Sotomayor. And my guess is that this guy, if it is him, uh, leaked it as kind of a last-ditch attempt to try to pressure one of the justices into changing their mind. Um, I think, if anything, it's going to have the opposite effect and make them dig in more, because if there's one thing uh, the Supreme Court justices care about, it's the perceived legitimacy of the Supreme Court. Um, Yep. So I really don't see any of them changing their vote now. It would look as though they'd been forced to do so by public opinion. And, you know, having paid attention to the, uh, the Democrats' reaction to this, I've heard a lot of them say we need to codify abortion rights into federal law. Um, I've been seeing a lot of state-level uh, Democratic politicians like Gavin Newsom in California um, talking up what their own state is going to do. But I really haven't seen like a hard push from them to say like one of these justices needs to change their vote before the opinion's released. Um, because I think they know that that would be playing with fire, that if that were to happen, the decision would be regarded as completely illegitimate. Now, the the skeptic in me, which I always try to keep handy just in case someone tries to slip disinformation to me. I understand it's a huge problem these days. But the skeptic in me also wonders, all right, the the interest in this is intense. The emotions are off the charts. And I mean, on both sides, elation on the pro-life side, uh, you know, anger on the part of, uh, of the pro-abortion left. Um, are we being played? Is it possible that... This is being dropped on us now to, I don't know, to foment deeper division, to to shake things up before what looks like a pretty runaway um, midterm elections for for the Republicans. Yeah, well, we certainly have have deep division here. Um, I think it's possible that this might cost the Republicans something in the midterms. I'm seeing kind of different takes on uh, to what degree it'll move the needle, if at all. Um, Honestly, if... You know, one of my biggest priorities uh, politically, uh, you know, if you ask me for my wish list, overturning Roe will be right at the top. So if we get that and uh, um, we don't gain quite as many seats as we might have otherwise on the Republican side, then that's a trade off that I'm perfectly happy with. Mm. Um, And I think the decision would have come out before the midterms regardless. I think it was originally was due out this summer. So um, I'm not sure how much of a difference the leak is going to make. Uh, as far as the midterms go, I don't know. I, like I said, my my take on why this was leaked is that it was just this last ditch attempt to try to either force a justice to change their mind or to give the Democrats extra time to try to, uh, you know, either whip up support for November or to try to force through some kind of federal codification of of abortion rights, which they don't have the votes for. So. Assuming this this issue is kicked back to the states, where I believe to it rightfully belongs, um, is that going to settle the issue in in many ways? Uh, I can't see it ex- exacerbating things worse than they already were when the feds were saying, you know, this is the one size fits all approach. What's your take on? Um, are we seeing a little bit of uh, life being be, being breathed back into federalism? I think so. I mean, we're going to see abortion severely restricted in about half of the U.S. states basically overnight. A lot of the states have what are called trigger laws that automatically will 
uh, implement abortion restrictions when Roe's overturned. Uh, a lot of them still have their uh, bans from before Roe was handed down that are still on the books that have just been unenforceable for 50 years. And then there are several others that have Republican-controlled legislatures that will almost certainly move quickly to ban abortion um, or severely restricted at the very least. So, yeah, I think this is a really beautiful uh, example of federalism. I will say, however, that my I would be dishonest if I said that my end goal was just leave this to the states and let people decide. Um, I would love to see uh, at the federal level a um, a law banning abortion, you know, entirely or at six weeks or whatever we could get, honestly. Uh, to me, it's... Uh, it's an issue that on in many ways I feel uh <laughs> I feel as though it that there's no there's no compromise on really um you know if you if you truly believe that uh babies are being murdered um when abortions take place then you should not be comfortable living in a country where that's uh legally permitted in any circumstances except uh when it's the only recourse to save the mother's life I personally would rather see that taken care of at the state level with the assumption that I don't think there's a single state, you know, that looks upon murder of, you know, mm-hmm. people who've been born as anything other than homicide. Um, but yeah. I hate to say well, look, I'll, I'll I have little faith in the federal as, government most of the time. I'll agree with you insofar as I would be happy if every state individually were to ban abortion. <laughs> as would I. As would I. <laughs> It's just, and, and I'm coming at this from the idea that, well, where the Constitution doesn't really mention it, then I would assume that that would fall to the states and the people to, to sort that out. But uh, that's why we need a pro life constitutional amendment. I wish we had more time. I, I, we'll have to, I want you to come back on the show and we can talk about this some more. I'm grateful for everything that you do, Grayson, to get out there and to, to give a message that's principled and that is, uh, you know, helping people find find direction this is a tough time where can people best follow you so that they can can read your writing yeah sure so i do my opinion writing mostly at the spectator world um if you just google my name grayson quay g-r-a-y-s-o-n-q-u-a-y and spectator my author page pops right up um, and you can you can follow me there. Uh, you can also follow me on Twitter at Hemingway, H-E-M-I-N-G-Q-U-A-Y. All right. I will have links in the show notes. Thanks for spending some time with me. Congratulations. Enjoy that victory <laughs> and, and on to, to bigger and better it. things. <laughs> yes. Thank you for having me, Brian. This is The Brian Hyde Show. A trusted voice of truth and light. God gave me a gift. I shovel well. I shovel very well. And a rally point for those who've accepted the reality that they are not sheep. We've got a blind date with destiny. And it looks like she's ordered the lobster. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Well, hello there and welcome to the show. This is a place where free thinkers gather to revel in wrong think, to enjoy one another's camaraderie, and to hopefully get just a little bit different view of the world around us with, of course, the understanding that I'm not here to tell you what to think. I'm here to encourage you to think as clearly and independently as possible. And it's not like I have any kind of special qualifications, okay? I wasn't born rich, tall, handsome, or anything like that. I'm not smart, but I am somebody who truly believes that, you know, the the 
the freedom that we enjoy is not just some some weird cosmic accident, but actually the greatest gift that God has ever given his children. And so I'm here to encourage people to, to claim that freedom, use it wisely, give respect and give thanks to the author of that freedom. Having said that, I also have some great sponsors who make this show possible, including GovernYourCrypto.com, the Heather Turner team at Patriot Home Mortgage, LifesavingFood.com, Monticello College, Sewing and Quilting Center, and HSLAmmo.com, as well as Dixie Chiropractic. So I, I'm going to warn you, I'm going to go into uh, an area here that's going to likely make a few people uncomfortable, but I found a couple of really solid articles that I think are worth sharing on the topic of grooming Children. Now, I'm not talking about specifically grooming them sexually. So, you know, the have a seat, won't you, Chris Hansen kind of, um, of uh, approach. This, this is not just about going after the, the perverts. But I am going to start with, a, with an article from M.B. Matthews that wonders why there's such a clear push to sexualize the teaching of even very young children. And M.B. Matthews says, well, this is more about normalizing perversion. M.B. Matthews writes, the reasons for the left's perverse sexualizing of very young children make sense only if you're sexually neurotic. None of it makes sense if you're a rational, healthy, sexually normal person. For example, what's to be gained by first graders learning about drag queens and transsexuality? How is a child's life improved? How's the culture improved? When children children whose brains are not even physically equipped to process such information nonetheless get exposed to it. If it's the hope of sexualizers that children will become more accepting of perversity, to what end? M.B. Matthews writes, No government school child of any age should be taught matters of sexuality, sexual behavior, or sexual identity beyond the egg-sperm basics. There's no legitimate reason for it. Let's back this truck up and reframe the argument. Instead of settling the debate where conservatives concede age-appropriateness ground to the sexualizers, reverse this polluted stream and remove all sexual material from all public and private schools and leave these matters to parents. Conservatives have been far too accommodating on this matter. M.B. Matthews asks, why is the left so anxious to expose little kids to sexually explicit cartoons of two boys or one man and one boy engaging in oral sex, as has been depicted in some school books? To normalize adult sexuality, normal or perverse, for small children, is to tell them that it's normal for them to engage in it at their age. It isn't. This is like putting a boulder on an egg. Kids are eggs easily molded and more easily scrambled. This makes them perfect victims for pernicious child predators. The same goes for transsexual material. Why groom a child into transsexuality, then try to hide it from parents if it's not wrong? Is this mere purence, or is this uh, something more deeply malevolent? M.B. Matthews says we've recently discovered many instances of child grooming in and out of the classroom. Many schools eliminated male-female bathrooms in favor of unisex bathrooms, which are grooming grounds for perverts. Some men insist on being called women and are entering the locker rooms of women and young girls, young girls, stalkers, flashing their junk and not batting an eye. Is life so dull for sexualizers that they must create some illicit sizzle? Is sexual bombast the only way for some odious people to feel that their damaged presence in the world has meaning? 
Online videos laced with explicit content and profanity have been on the rise. They depict pedophiles luring and fondling small children. A simple search of the Internet will pull up many pedophiles, almost always men, caught in the act of trying to engage very young children in sexual encounters on buses, in big box stores, and elsewhere. What used to be rare has become commonplace. Outrageous sexual behavior seems to be the only behavior that some adults engage in in order to get attention. Take TikTok and Instagram, for example. They're repugnant cesspools of coarseness, vulgarity, and obscenity. Crude, loud, and vulgar, with profanity off the charts, ostentatious ostentatious sexual behavior has become de rigueur in our culture. Children have open access to this kind of sexual novocaine, jading them for normal sex later. Many men who are addicted to pornography are reporting sexual dysfunction in normal sexual performance. How is a sexualized culture going for them? Sexual content and profanity flood every facet of the culture. M.B. Matthews says, I was watching the new TV series in the Rust Belt of the country. Every, he says, the F word was tossed casually around by men and women alike, peppering almost every conversation and every other sentence. The F word wasn't just uttered to swear, it became an adjective. Now, M.B. Matthews also says, it's the goal of the left to strip sexuality of its decency, its sanctity, and its beauty, because they abhor the very idea of a God who holds people responsible for the breaking of his commandments and biblical principles. They do all they can to reduce sexual behavior to an animal act, a bodily function. It's very Darwin, very Rousseau, two heroes of the left. These two men still speak to us from the grave with their fetid breath. Depriving children of their childhood by sexualizing them is a crime worthy of the worst possible punishment. Children should be playing games, getting dirty, and learning how to interact properly with other children and adults. They should be learning good manners, honor, decency, and respect for others. They should be learning math, honest American and world history, reading, composition, technology, and biology. It seems as though many of these valuable subjects are being broomed in favor of sexual grooming and indoctrination that young children do not benefit from and that actually damage them. When we ask qui bono regarding this kind of sexual malfeasance, we discover that it is the libidinous wolves of both sexes that benefit, not the kids. So M.B. Matthews says, if we do nothing about the sexualizing of children, can we live as decent human beings? knowing that our schools are cranking out jaded, abused, damaged children for whom nothing is saved or sacred as they reach adulthood. Sexuality is treated by the sexualizers as the benign equivalent of choosing tofu over fries. These malignant individuals classify sexual behavior as just one of many things people do, like playing video games or fixing the garbage disposal. But sex was meant to be something else. A creative act, sublime, Sacred, elevated, something that's an expression of passionate love, not loveless passion. It was not meant to be crass and purient. Right now, it should be viewed as the rape of the innocents. Now, the Bible's clear about luring children or hurting them. Whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him to have a great millstone fastened around his neck and to be drowned in the depths of the sea. M.B. Matthews says, if you think God is short-tempered with hypocrites, that is nothing compared to the hellish fate he has waiting for pedophiles, groomers, and other degenerates, whether they believe in God or not. 
Now, that may seem a tad harsh to some people, but I would say, you know, we're, we're at the point where maybe we need to have some, some fairly straightforward talk. I refer again to the great British anthropologist J.D. Unwin. Sex and Civilization was the book that he published after studying 85 different civilizations, large and small, ancient and modern, um, both advanced and primitive. And his findings, not done in the sense of, well, I'm a minister out here looking you know, for something to justify why you know people should do what the Bible says. Nonetheless, his findings showed that the people who find themselves in in the position of um, pursuing pleasure, as if that is the only thing in life that matters, will see their societies decline. Now, again, this was 85, 85 different societies he studied, without exception. When people became more consumed with just simply seeking pleasure, primarily, you know, sexual pleasure, not to... Focusing that uh, that drive in a creative direction and practicing fidelity, practicing self-control, that's when they went into decline. I mean, you can look at a lot of history and draw these same conclusions. What makes us think we're going to be the exception? Well, we have the Internet. Yes, and we seem to be declining pretty fast, too, in spite of it. I mean, just I'm just saying, <laughs> maybe it's not helping as much as we think it should. Nevertheless, there is something to be said for self-control, self-governance. People who can govern themselves, including their appetites and passions, they don't need to be governed by some outside force. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, welcome back to the show. I'd like to tell you about Dixie Chiropractic. In fact, I'd like to encourage you, go to their website, DixieChiro.com. And particularly, if you are dealing with, uh, say, neuropathy, I would invite you to check out their $99 Calmare treatment plus massage. If you have bulging herniated discs, first of all, my condolences. That's... uh, Something I've had to contend with from time to time. It is not fun, but look, here's a $99 intro special. Two treatments plus massage at Dixie Chiropractic, $99. And if you're dealing with car accident injuries, talk to Dixie Chiropractic to learn about how you can have those things taken care of. You can have uh, relief with no money out of pocket. They can explain the details to you. DixieChiro.com. They're located in St. George, Utah. Very proud to have them as a sponsor of this program. So I'm going to continue on here a little bit on, again, the sexualizing of children and trying to strip away any innocence from their lives. Now, I know the left takes a lot of offense. Anytime someone points out, hey, stop uh, using the school systems to groom our children. And, And for a lot of people, when they hear the word grooming, they immediately think, oh, yes, pedophiles, grooming them, you know, for some kind of, you know, sexual misadventure. But grooming takes a lot of different forms. Got an article here from James Stansbury that talks about this. James Stansbury says, by now it's widely known that Disney will be adding many LGBT characters to help groom our kids for early sexual activity of all kinds, with the likely unintended consequence of helping prepare many for sex traffickers and pedophiles. 
In Virginia, news coverage of parents protesting the indoctrination of their children in the woke CRT and LGBT agendas at school board meetings in Loudoun County helped close some doors to the sex-obsessed left who want to hypersexualize our kids from K through 12. The Loudoun County protests also resulted in an unexpected loss for former VA governor and fundraiser for the Clintons, Terry McAuliffe, in his run for governor against a political novice, Glenn Youngkin. McAuliffe's defeat was assured only after he reinforced the leftist notion that parents have no say in what their children are taught. Well, with a new supportive governor and control in the House, he says, we Virginians at least uh, thought the door to the public school gender fluidity indoctrination of our youth was finally under control. However, an email bulletin sent out by Family Foundation of Virginia President Victoria Cobb on uh, April 14th warns that the left has found another way to reach kids with sexually explicit materials. Here's what it says. Once again, the Virginia Department of Health is promoting instructional material that contains links to websites peddling objectionable and lewd content, this time to school administrators, school nurses, teachers, and other school personnel who in turn can share the materials with children attending public schools. Included among the sexual health resources is a link to the website for Advocates for Youth Advocates for Children and Youth. Wow, that's uh, right up there with the Department of Redundancy Department. Nonetheless, which which uh, apparently it uh, offers resources for, uh, uh, it promotes campaigns like Abortion Out Loud or Free the, youth, Free the Pill Youth Council offers resources for abortion access and provides an animated video series called Amaze aimed at young kids that talks about issues like abortion, sex, sexuality, and sexual identity. In other words, all topics that should be reserved for parents. Now, it's noteworthy that the Amaze video series mentioned above was also cited by Tucker Carlson several weeks ago regarding one of their videos recommending porn as a healthy activity for kids. And Amaze is not the only school resource available for sexual indoctrination of kids. A year ago, Jonathan Copel, a teacher in the St. Tammany Parish School District in Louisiana, voiced similar concerns about the cute animated videos from another school resource called Brain Pop that also includes sexually explicit material. His powerful message at a school board meeting was picked up by Fox News, PragerU, and many others. He said, this isn't a political indoctrination camp, okay? It's public education. We want to teach education, not left-wing ideas that aren't backed up by facts or science. The larger question is, what has happened to turn our public schools into radical leftist indoctrination centers? The aforementioned involvement by the Virginia Department of Health is likely connected to a new program the CDC is pushing. Some research provided by, uh, some related research rather, provided by Glenn Beck provided this connection. Glenn and his team uncovered the origin of the progressive plan to move from universities straight to kids in K-12. Glenn and his researchers traced back as far as possible and have landed point-blank at the government through the CDC. The government solution came directly from the Centers for Disease Control in the form of an education model called Whole School, Whole Community, Whole Child. The model began to change the role of schools and teachers into places of therapy. This model is based on the assumption that every child has some issue. The trick was to identify what it was and then push them into one of their little oppressed or oppressor groups. Now, obviously, the D.C. swamp is 
deep and wide, so when one door closes for the radical left, another one opens. For example, Joy Pullman wrote in The Federalist about Emily Drabinsky, who was elected president of the American Library Association by the organization's members. She's a self-described Marxist lesbian. She said about her first librarian job at Sarah Lawrence, absolutely everybody was queer. There were so many ways to be gay, and it was my job to teach those students how to find themselves in our library catalog. Now, she described queering the library as critical thinking and thinking critically about the catalog. Now, the above information might also help explain why so many libraries sponsor drag queen reading time for young kids, but not why parents would allow their kids to attend. Discovery Plus is also promoting a new series called Generation Drag about youth drag queen wannabes. The trailer from executive producer Tyra Banks hits the streaming service on June 1st in honor of Pride Month. Note to parents, I wouldn't let your kids watch, nor would I recommend scheduling a trip to Disney World in June. One known Marxist purpose is to undermine the traditional family unit and belief in God. Both could take the power away from their dream of establishing an all-powerful, socialist, one-world government. You can't have that competing morality. So the push to normalize the LGBTQ lifestyle in this country made a giant leap forward when President, when then-President Obama lit up the White House with rainbow colors after forcing the military to accept transgenders and use taxpayer dollars to pay for the conversion surgery of those who requested. Nonetheless, the most pressing question is how to stop it. Jen Psaki in- indicates that the Biden administration fully supports it and will be a major hindrance. Kirk Cameron has suggested more homeschooling and is producing a video to explain it. Cameron has a trailer of the Homeschool Awakening on YouTube. However, the author here says, in my opinion, homeschooling may be impossible for most parents. That leaves only concerned parents and unwoke teachers with the courage to investigate and stand up at school board meetings as the only real solution. And, of course, it also requires the rest of us to show up to vote the rascal leftists out at the next opportunity. Now, I say this as someone who's wife teaches in the public school system. And I think she's an excellent example of of the good influence that's available within that system. However, I'm going to say that if you as a parent, if that resonates with you, the idea that, hey, I don't want my kids being taught these kind of things, like James Stansbury's outlining in this article, as difficult as it may be, if you are serious about protecting your kids from these kinds of influences, you should probably be prepared to consider pulling your kids out of school and schooling them yourselves. It's, yeah. There's no free lunch. And I know that for a lot of parents, you know, school system is nothing more than a very glorified babysitter, which is easy to justify because, well, at least this babysitter is teaching my kids something useful. But now you got a few other considerations. Maybe there are some things that aren't so useful that are also being taught. And, in fact, maybe some things are being taught that are carefully calculated to undermine whatever morality you are trying to teach your kids. And I'm, you know, I'm sorry if I'm going to come down on on some people's toes here, but uh, as a parent, I do not feel personal accountability to the government for how my kids are raised. I do feel personal accountability to God. And I feel like I will answer before God one day, did you teach your kids right from wrong? Did you do your best to help them become good people? who could withstand the evils of this world. Sometimes it feels like the public schools are doing everything they can to drive that wedge between us. This is The Brian Hyde Show.
This is The Brian Hyde Show. All right, welcome back to the show. Got to send some love out here to lifesavingfoods.com as well as hslammo.com. Please take the time to visit my show notes at thebrianheidshow.com. You'll notice there's a special special little section there specifically for my sponsors. And I am very grateful for them helping to make it possible for me to do what I do on a daily basis. I'm asking you to consider doing business with them. Life-saving food and uh, HSL ammo. I think these should be pretty self-explanatory, but I provided links so that you can explore further what both of these wonderful businesses have to offer. Please consider doing business with them. If in, if by some chance you find yourself in need of food or high-quality, new and remanufactured ammunition. Well, I don't know if you caught this, but there was a story that came out just within the last few days that uh, the CDC is now admitting that it used data, it collected data from millions of cell phones without anybody's permission in order to track social distancing compliance. Now, this took place, I believe, in 2021. But uh, does that does that give you warm fuzzies? That make you feel like, oh, well, hey, they're looking out for me. I guess I should probably feel honored. Yes, even flattered that they care so much. And, of course, the NSA continues to collect all of our electronic data. Anything you do electronically, yeah, the NSA is just hanging on to it just in case, you know, someday we need to take an interest in you. Judge Andrew Napolitano says, well, this, uh, this can tell us something about where we stand. In fact, he goes so far as to say, we don't even have a Bill of Rights anymore. What we have is a Bill of Temporary Privileges. Here's how he explains it. He says, last week, the director of national intelligence, the data gathering and data concealing arm of the American intelligence community, masquerading as the head of it, revealed that in 2021, the FBI engaged in 3.4 million warrantless electronic searches of Americans. Now, that's a direct and profound violation of the right to privacy in persons, houses, papers and effects guaranteed by the Fourth Amendment. For the past 60 years, he says the Supreme Court has characterized electronic surveillance as a search that can only be conducted pursuant to a warrant issued by a judge based on the probable cause of crime, which itself must be presented under oath to the judge. The warrant must specifically describe the place to be searched and the person or thing to be seized. Now, by failing to comply with these constitutional requirements, the FBI violated the natural and constitutionally protected right to be left alone of millions of Americans. Yet all of this was perfectly lawful. How can government behavior be both lawful and unconstitutional at the same time and in the same respect? Well, here's the backstory. Judge Napolitano says the, the Fourth Amendment was written in 1791, while memories of British soldiers searching colonial homes were still prevalent. The British used general warrants to justify their violation of colonists' privacy. Now, a general warrant was not based on probable cause of crime. It, generated when it, it was generated whenever the British government persuaded a secret court in London that it needed something from foreign persons, the colonists. The British government didn't even need to identify what it needed. General warrants authorized the bearer to search wherever he pleased and to seize whatever he found. The Fourth Amendment was written expressly to outlaw general warrants and warrantless searches. After President Richard Nixon used the FBI and the CIA to spy on his political opponents, Congress enacted the Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Act of 1978, which prohibited warrantless domestic surveillance. 
Now, since the Fourth Amendment already did so, the prohibition was superfluous. But it was also toothless, as the new law set up a secret court, the FISA court, which issued surveillance warrants based not on probable cause of crime as the Fourth Amendment requires, but on probable cause of communicating with a foreign person. And the court, over time, kept modifying its own rules to make it easier for the National Security Agency, America's 60,000 domestic spies, to spy on Americans. So today, if you call your cousin in London, the Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Court can authorize the NSA to spy on you. And then you call your sister-in-law in Kansas. FISC can allow the NSA to spy on her and on the folks she calls and the folks they call. Now, this massive invasion of privacy produced huge amounts of data, which Pfizer required the NSA to keep to itself and use only to anticipate breaches of national security. The data acquired from spying on all fiber optic transmitted communications could not be shared with law enforcement since it had been obtained in violation of the Fourth Amendment. That prohibition was known as the wall between the intelligence and law enforcement communities. Now, he goes on to say in 2008, after the Bush administration was caught in massive warrantless spying on Americans, Congress enacted amendments to the to FISA that removed that wall. Stated differently, the new law, Section 702 of FISA, which expires in 20 months, required all telecom and computer service providers to give the NSA unfettered access to their computers whenever the feds came calling, with or without FISA warrants, and also allowed the FBI access to the body of raw intelligence data that the NSA acquired. The wall between the intelligence community and law enforcement is gone. Every member of Congress has taken an oath to uphold the Constitution, yet by repeated majority votes and the signatures of all pre-Biden presidents since 2008, continually reenacting Section 702, Congress has permitted the FBI to bypass the Constitution. Thus, FBI spying is lawful because the statute authorizes it, but it's unconstitutional because that statute violates the Fourth Amendment. Now, last week... The Director of National Intelligence, who is required by Section 702 to report all FBI access to the raw intelligence data, did so. But her record-keeping is as sloppy as her fidelity to the Constitution. Thus, she reported 3.4 million FBI searches of raw intelligence data on Americans in 2021. Now, you'd think that that meant that 3.4 million Americans had their emails, text messages, phone calls, medical and legal and personal records surveilled by the FBI, but you'd be incorrect. To the feds, the word search refers refers rather to the input of a search term like January 6th or local militia or small government. One FBI search thus can lead to the records of thousands of Americans. Judge Napolitano says... It is hard to believe that senior management of the CIA, NSA, and FBI can perpetuate these egregious constitutional violations with straight faces, but they do. And Congress permits it. Why? Because the CIA, NSA, FBI, and their collaborators have dirt on members of Congress. Dirt. I'm sorry if that shakes your faith, but uh, Judge Napolitano's point here is very clear. The federal government is rotten to its core. Its officers and employees don't believe that the Constitution means what it says, and they'll lie, cheat, threaten, bribe, and steal to cut constitutional corners and remain in power. The Fourth Amendment was written to protect the quintessentially American right to privacy. 
is a critical part of the structure of the Bill of Rights, or rather, he says, it was. Because today in America, we have no rights. Remember, a right is an indefeasible claim against the whole world to think as you wish, to say and publish what you think, to worship or not, to defend yourself, to experience your life, to exercise your liberty and to use your property without a government permission slip and to be left alone. The Constitution is the supreme law of the land. Yet the rights it facially protects are now subject to government approval. So the Bill of Rights, he says, is really a bill of temporary privileges. Now, I'm sorry if you find that depressing. That is kind of a, you know, it's a little bit of a bucket of cold water in the face of people who are like, well, it's, you know, it's bad, but it's not that bad. No, it's, it's that bad. And I'm not convinced that voting is going to be the way we're going to undo this. I know there are people who are giving a lot of time and energy to it, and, and I'm not going to tell you, hey, that's all wasted. But I'm going to suggest that perhaps there are other areas in which your limited amount, your finite resources of, of time, effort, and moral energy might be better used to shore up those sagging freedoms. I'm still a huge believer that uh, building parallel structures is the way to go whether it's parallel economies parallel institutions you know your own homeschooling is probably as good a, a an indication of what this looks like as anything that i can think of what i'm not suggesting is, is you know we need revolution in the streets and go out there and fight them head on you know nope i think what we need to do is construct our own lives and and to to construct our own parallels to the systems that are trying to rule our lives They don't need to be carbon copies. They just need to be functioning structures that allow us to say, no thanks. When big government says, hey, you have to do this, or you need us, remember, you need what we provide. No, we don't. And I have a suspicion that most of this building of these uh, parallel structures is going to take place on a much more local community, maybe even familial level. But given the corruption that is so endemic at the top, I think it's best to start at the individual, family, community level, and then work our way up. Feel free to disagree. That's just my opinion. It's worth exactly what you paid for it. We'll be back in just a moment. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, welcome back to the show. Hey, I'm very happy to welcome uh, Teresa Alsop to the program. Teresa is the owner of Sewing and Quilting Center in St. George, Utah. And Teresa, I know I'm kind of dragging you here against your will, so thank you for, for, for willingly coming on here and talking with me. How are you? I'm doing great. You're not dragging me. I just don't like to talk to no, everyone. I, I get it. And, and I understand that, uh, you know, you have talents in other areas. Particularly, though, I think you are the person I want to talk to when it comes to uh, to just getting a little bit better understanding about uh, sewing machines. And, I, and I'm doing this. There's Here's a very self-serving purpose for why I'm doing this. I know there are guys within earshot. And who knows? Maybe there, there are, you know, some who have been thinking of this for a while. But... They're trying to think, what can I do for Mother's Day, which is coming up? And so I'd like to talk to you about sewing machines and about if, if a guy was thinking about buying a sewing machine, whether it's for Mother's Day or just 
what you want to surprise your wife? What are the kinds of things that they should come and see you and and learn about? What would you want them to know? Well, first of all, I would like them to know that um, sewing is just like any other hobby that people like to do, but just like um, tools and other things that you use, you use a sewing machine for different things. And so maybe instead of surprising their wife, they should have their wife come with them and look at their sewing, at sewing machines. The reason why is if there's several different types of hobbies within a sewist. So some people might love to piece um, quilts together. Others might want to sew clothing or uh, embroidery is a very big hobby right now. And depending on the type of sewing they enjoy to do, um, changes the type of machine you would like. For me, I love piecing and I love quilting and I love sewing clothes for people. However, my favorite thing to do is quilting on a long arm. And that's a whole different hobby in itself. Um, so it's really important to have their wife come in and look at the machine also so that they could pick out the right machine for what they like to enjoy doing. Now, when you talk about this as a hobby, I want people to understand this is not just, oh, that's nice. It's a way to pass time. This is a hobby that people take every bit as seriously as uh, those who are into building race cars or flying uh, remote control airplanes or, you know, whatever. It is. And, and, and the possibilities. Teresa, talk to me about how technology has changed just in your lifetime regarding um, sewing machines, sergers, quilters and so forth. Well, it's changed quite a bit. Um, besides being a hobby, um, they can also do a small business. Um, myself, I owned a long arm and I quilted for people as a, a side business before I owned the store. And I made quite a bit of money quilting quilts for people. Um, I know that there is embroidery that people do quite a bit. Um, and they can do that as a side business besides being a hobby. Um, and we have both type people coming to the store to purchase machines. Um, here in St. George, I know there are a few young ladies that actually have developed websites and developed um, clothing for children. And they come and have purchased sergers from our store and um, do clothing for little kids. Um, it's a lot of fun. The the embroidery is like amazing what you can do now. You can actually do digitizing for your own designs if you would like. Um, we do have classes here in the store um, that you're able to come and learn how to do embroidery. So it's not just hobby. You can actually do a business. You can repair your clothing. There's quite a bit you can do with sewing. Very nice. And, 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 it's. I mean, look, you can shoot. The, the sky's the limit, right? I. Eric was telling me, your husband, Eric, was telling me about some of the long-arm quilting machines. And I mean, uh, like you say, this this could actually be a business. But for people who just want to get started, where where does the entry level begin? What what price point? Well, we have machines here in our store that start at $150 and go up to $30,000, depending on what type of sewing you would like to do. Um, it really is best to come into the store and let us talk to you and find out what kind of sewing you would like to do, whether it's for a hobby, whether it's to embroidery for fun, or if it's um, 
teaching. Maybe you're brand new. We just had a customer come in yesterday and she wanted to learn how to sew clothes for her and her husband, not because she needed to, but because she thought it would be fun. And so depending on what type of sewing you want to do, we can help you with that. We also, when we sell a machine, we get we teach you how to use that machine. So, of course, the $150 machine is a pretty basic machine. It will still sew through six layers of denim or leather, a quarter an inch thick. Um, however, to be able to sew clothing, you want more button holers and different decorative stitches, depending on what you want to do. Um, and then we teach you how to use that machine. And for the simplistic um, machines, it's a one-day class that's about two hours. And for the more elaborate machines, we have five to um, six classes at two hours each. And those are all free of charge with the purchase of a machine. So it's, it's not just, well, good luck. <laughs> you'll, you'll actually no. show them how to use it. Not here. We do we do teach our customers how to use the machine. They're investing in them themselves for a machine that they would enjoy. And of course, it would be a lot easier for them if they are taught how to use the machine. They're not complicated to use. They're very simple, easy machines to use. However, they have come so far in what they will do nowadays that you just need to be taught how to use those systems. So, Teresa, tell me this. Um, obviously, there are people who find joy in creating things, but what reasons do people give you for why, you know, they're they're in the market to, to start doing more of their own sewing? What are some of the things that, that you're told? Well, um, Tammy, one of our workers here, she's um, read papers and read about it. It's high uh, high. Sorry, it's eye and hand coordination with using your brain. And there have been studies done that help you with your memory and concentration because you're using those three different functions at one time. Um, and they've done studies where you can do better with your memory if you have high eye hand coordination and um, you're multitasking. It helps your brain work better. Um, for fun, it's very enjoyable to sew and uh, make something for somebody that you've given them personally. It's another art form. Um, instead of using paint, I'm using thread to um, quilt a quilt with the design that I have digitized myself. Um, my son enjoys the embroidery and he has digitized designs um, so that he can stitch out something that he's drawn and the sewing machines these days if you have like a picture um, your child has drawn you can actually scan it nice with the sewing <laughs> machine it will take that picture attach um, embroidery stitches to it and then you could stitch it out onto a quilt or onto a piece of material and frame it so it's just really there is an infinite amount of um, creative art that you can do with it piecing quilts and the quilt artistry that is out there it's amazing what you can do with sewing and there's there's a wonderful um, sense of heritage that goes along with those quilts my mom has been a quilter for a very long time 
And uh, she has shown me a lot of the handiwork that she's done, and there's a lot of it. And that's stuff that's going to be passed down, you know, through our family, you know, for for as many generations as as it lasts. Yes, I just quilted a quilt that was um, hand-sewn by my grandma, my great-grandma, actually. And then my grandmother um, put the sashing on. And then my mother finished the sashing because my grandmother didn't finish it. And then now I just quilted it. And it's, it's that's a one, two, three, four generation quilt that had been worked on by four generations. It's, and it's quite lovely. Wow. All right. So um, I'm going to, this, this is primarily going to be for our listeners in the Southern Utah area, but I want you to tell people where can they find Sewing and Quilting Center? What's your store location? We are at 779 South Bluff Street. Um, in St. George, Utah, and it's in the old St. George Shopping Center. Okay, but you get people who come from all over the place because you guys have a good rep out there. So um, if, if you're hearing this, it's worth checking out. What's your website? What's your web address? It's sewingquiltingcenter.com. Sewingquiltingcenter.com. Okay, yeah. Teresa, thank you for, for taking the time to, to share what you've shared with us today. And again, guys... You know, if you're struggling to find a Mother's Day present, I'm telling you, Teresa just gave you some really, really great material to work with. Thanks, Teresa, and let's have you back on the show. All right. Thanks, Brian. This is The Brian Hyde Show.